We'll come to a time in our service now. We're going to look at a passage from God's Word. We'll talk about what it means, why it matters, and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible with you, would you turn to Psalm 32? Psalm 32, if you're using this Brown Pew Bible, it's on page 395. And when you found that, would you stand together with me and I'll read this passage for us. Psalm 32. David writes this. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you while you may be found. Surely, when the mighty waters rise, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the man who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous sing, all you who are upright in heart. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray for us once more and just ask God's blessing now on this time in his word. Spirit of God, we invite you once again to come now and be present among us as we trust you already have been this morning in this gathering of your people. As we come to your word, would you open up our hearts and our minds to receive what it is that you want to accomplish in us through it. We believe that this is a living word, that you speak powerfully even now today through this word that was written so many years ago. We trust that it was inspired by your spirit and that that spirit who lives and who lives in us will continue to speak to us today. Would you move powerfully here today, God? Would you do work in a transforming way that renews us, that changes us, that encourages us, that challenges us in all the ways we need it? You tell us plainly in your word, when you send out your word, it doesn't return to you void. It accomplishes the purpose for which you sent it. Oh God, would you accomplish that purpose in each one of us today? And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. What is the most resilient parasite? Uh, is it bacteria? Is it a virus? Maybe an intestinal worm? No. It's an idea. An idea. Resilient, highly contagious. Once an idea has taken hold of the brain, it's almost impossible to eradicate. So says the character Cobb in Christopher Nolan's mind-bending film Inception. It's one of the blessings and cursings of uh, long plane flights as you get to catch up on films you haven't seen or rewatch old awesome films. 
That was my experience. This film, Inception, this is what he says, an idea. An idea is the most resilient parasite. And once it gets into our heads, almost impossible to eradicate. I think, I think that's true. That's absolutely true. I think in both a positive as well as a negative sense. And if there was ever an idea planted within the heart and within the mind that has maintained its hold over millennia and which has been more devastating to humanity as a whole, it's the idea planted by the serpent all the way back in the Garden of Eden we read about in Genesis 3. Namely, that the good, benevolent God of the universe that created the world and everything in it could not be trusted. That he wasn't truly for us. That he didn't truly have our best interests in mind. It's the idea that once it took hold, resulted in Adam and Eve rebelling against God's good commands and then seeking to hide from the very God that they had just walked freely with in the garden for all this time. Seeking to cover over the disobedience that they had performed rather than come to him and confess what they had done. And alongside the way that that idea continues to have the same devastating results to this very day in you and I, one of the other ways that that works itself out, along with our relationship with God, it also works out in the compounding results of that idea, which also happened in Adam and Eve as well, and that we've also come to believe now that we can't trust one another either. Can't trust you either. I don't think you're really for me either. One of the places I think we see this most clearly and obviously is just very simply in the social media age we live in right now, right? where we, we filter out, we, we cancel out, we cover over everything. Everything that we post online, it has a special filter to it, so we cover over everything from our wrinkles to uh, uh, painful situations, anything that happens to look not perfect in life. We just have this projected perfection uh, of social media where we cover ourselves even from one another. And the scary thing to think about is that the longer this idea persists and the more we live in that dreamland of projected perfection, the harder it becomes to distinguish between reality and the dream. We begin to lose sight of which one is which anymore. But aside from the cracks that daily form revealing that facade for what it truly is, the truth that likely everyone in here I think would attest to is that whether it's seeking to hide from God or from one another, and it's also just exhausting, right? <laughs> Isn't it exhausting to keep that up? To keep trying to live out this projected perfection, which is so obviously not true and we daily prove isn't true. It's like trying to hold a giant beach ball underneath the water. Like you can do it, but after a while it just becomes so tiring, so all-consuming. You can't do anything else because all you can do is this. It's so tiring that after a while the truth just comes Rocketing up to the surface for all to see anyways, what we were trying so hard to keep covered up. But we are continuing this series we began a few weeks ago now through the book of Psalms entitled Every Last Key, talking about the truly transforming re reality that's revealed in the book of Psalms that the God who made us and formed us, he cares about, he, he wants to speak new life into every part of us, not just the parts of us that we think are presentable. That again, if you were to picture your life as, as a house, God wants to be given the key and, and invited into every last room. 
And while it may be true that that same idea that God can't be trusted all the way back in the beginning continues to convince us today that, that hiding, that, that covering over is the only way to find happiness with God and with each other. It's the only way to find fulfillment in life. What we find in this passage today in Psalm 32, which is really actually has kind of the core message of this whole series in it, is a powerfully contrasting idea to that first one. That, that true happiness, true fulfillment in life comes not from hiding our sin, not from hiding our failures from God, but from confessing them to Him, from bringing them to Him, freeing you at last from the lie that judgment rather than mercy awaits the one who acknowledges their failures to God. Because that's, that's really one of the big fears that, that gives power to that lie that God can't be trusted, right? I think if I show this to God, if I bring it to Him and confess Him, then... then I'm going to be condemned. I'm going to be punished. I'm going to be, his wrath will be on me. I can't show him these things. Psalm 32 says just the opposite is true. And when that idea, when that idea finally takes hold, it exposes the lie of the serpent for what it truly is. And it will bring a profound feeling of happiness, of, of fulfillment, of freedom in your life that maybe you didn't even know was possible anymore. And so, in order that you might experience that, that freedom and fulfillment uh, for yourself, I want to look at this contrasting idea presented in Psalm 32 in just two ways this morning. I want to talk about the blessing of confession, and then we'll talk about the way of confession. The blessing, and then the way of confession. So if you closed your Bibles, would you open them again to that passage there in Psalm 32? Follow along with me as we look at this next thing that God wants us to bring this next key he wants us to give him in bringing him our confession. Okay, so let's look first of all at the blessing of confession. The blessing of confession. Now, of course, that language of blessing comes from the first two verses of this psalm where you see David, who is the writer of this psalm, he gives us this description of what a blessed life looks like with these different descriptions, which interestingly is also, if you know how Jesus begins his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are all these things. It's the same idea. It's describing a blessed life in God. Three things to note quickly about that word blessed as it relates to this psalm in particular. First of all, the clear implication when David says blessed is that he means blessed by God. Blessed by God is the one who has their transgressions forgiven. And on and on with each of these descriptions. He means blessed by God. Secondly, the word blessed itself has a much deeper meaning than we usually give it in English. A lot of times we'll be like, oh, you got a lot of money. Uh, you got a beautiful family. You got whatever it is. You got the job you want. You're blessed. It, it has a much deeper meaning than what we often give it. Uh, uh, commentators tell us both in the Hebrew here as well as in the New Testament, in the Greek when it uses it there. The word blessed has the sense of a complete wellness of being. It's the whole experience of life itself, profound happiness and fulfillment in life. That's what's meant by this word, blessed. Finally, as you see, if you look through those four descriptions there, all four descriptions of this blessed life, you see, are in relation to freedom from sin. They're all in relation to freedom from sin. Now, so far, so good, right? There's nothing there that, that's really controversial, no matter what you believe about God in the Bible. It's just kind of like, yeah, okay. 
But as it relates to that last note in particular about freedom from sin, being forgiven for sin, pastor and author Tim Keller notes that there are very often three responses to that whole idea of forgiveness from sin, generally speaking. First of all, some people, they would see themselves as being too good to be forgiven, too good to be forgiven. This is what I'm calling basically an overly positive self-assessment. So this person, is not that they're saying they're perfect, but they would just say, you know what, I'm generally a good person. I haven't done anything really, really bad in my life. I don't really need forgiveness from any kind of God or anybody. I'm, I'm pretty good. This is someone who would see this idea as, I'm, I'm too good to be forgiven. And then way over on the other end of the spectrum, secondly, are those who would see themselves as too bad to be forgiven. This is what I would call a, an overly negative self-assessment. And these people would say, even though, yeah, I, I agree, we need to be forgiven by God, they would say, uh, the problem here is that my sin or sins or whatever it is, they're simply too great for God to forgive, either to, to be able to forgive or to want to forgive. I'm too bad to be forgiven. And then finally, there are the ones that Psalm 32 describes for us here. Those who see their need to be forgiven and have been forgiven. As, as Keller states it, according to Psalm 32, the happiest, most blessed people in the world are those who not only know they need to be deeply forgiven, but have also experienced it. I think that's true. But as you keep reading, what you notice right away in the very next verse, verse 3 here, is while the offer of, of, of forgiveness is, is given here, you notice that the experience of forgiveness, it's not universal. Everyone doesn't experience. It's not continuous. Nor does it come without a cost. And we know that because of the description David gives in verse 3 and 4 of a time in his life when although he knew God, he did not know that blessed experience that he described back in verse 1 and 2. Look at me at verse 3 and 4 there. Look what he says. When I kept silent, that is when I did not confess, my bones wasted away. Through my groaning all day long for day and night, your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. If there was ever a clearer picture in the Bible that while the offer of forgiveness remains, that God is not indifferent to sin in the life of his children, this is it, right? Because you see there in verse 3, David describes both physical as well as emotional consequences to his failure to confess. He's hiding, he's covering, and as a result, he's experiencing these physical and emotional consequences, uh, results of not confessing. And verse 4 shows us it's not just natural consequences of the sin alone. It's, it's a direct result of, of the, the weight of God's hand heavily upon him. He says, your hand was heavy upon me, which is why I felt this way. It's only after David's confession then, after he acknowledges his sin, he uncovers his sin in verse 5, that he at last experiences that blessed experience of forgiveness again. See in verse 5, he says it there. Then... I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. There's the, the freedom, the, the restored back to that feeling of blessed freedom once again. Now, most commentators I read agree that because this, same, this psalm is written by David, Psalm 32, that this part here is likely referring to that scene back in 2 Samuel 12 when the prophet Nathan confronted David about his adultery with Bathsheba and his murder of her husband Uriah. 
And remember, David had, had finally uh, agreed to acknowledge his sin and, and uncover what he had done as he was rebuked. If you were here a few months ago as we went through that series through the life of David, you'll remember this, where Nathan comes and rebukes David, and then David says, it's almost identical to what we just read in verse 5. Nathan confronts David, rebukes him, and it says, Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. So in the moment that he confesses, the sin is taken away. He's restored back to relationship. So if they're right, if this, if this really is referring to that time in David's life, then all that physical and emotional anguish that David was describing there in verse 3 and 4, that's a description of what he was feeling, the inner turmoil that he was going through through those weeks and months leading up to that time when Nathan confronted him about his sin. It sounds actually a whole lot like what we described when we first began this message this morning about just the exhausting, impossible task of trying to cover over our sins, to, 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 to keep our failures from God as well as others covered over and pushed down under the water, trying to do this projected perfection over and over again. David basically says here, I couldn't do it. I couldn't keep it up. I couldn't keep that ball under the water for another second. And I think the, the point, the reason David is pointing this out, describing his experience of the absence of God's blessing when he refused to confess his sin is to say to everyone who reads Psalm 32, and neither can you. You can't, you can't do it either. You can't keep it up. You, no matter how much you think you've pulled the wool over people's eyes, covered over your sin, the merciful weight of God's hand, the, the loving heat of his rebuke will not allow you to carry on that way forever. You won't be able to do it. He's not going to let you do it. Why? Why? Because God's some kind of angry bylaw officer just waiting to drop down punishments and penalties whenever we don't follow the rules properly? No. No, because God is a loving Father who desires that we would know the blessed freedom of His forgiveness. That's why He wants us to do this. But what Psalm 32, as well as numerous other passages, are plainly showing us here is that the only way to know that blessed experience is through confession, through what He's Showing us here, acknowledging of our sin. But as great as that sounds for some of us, I have no doubt there are others in, a, in this room this morning who find that whole idea actually kind of disturbing, troubling actually, not, not really a great description at all. And the reason is, particularly if you've been in church for a long time, because you're looking at that and you're thinking, well, the whole message of the gospel the gospel message we preach Sunday after Sunday is a salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, not a result of works, lest any man should boast. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 2, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8. So, so you think, okay, well, how can that be true? And then we'd be talking at all about an experience of God's forgiveness that doesn't continue, let alone speaking about a, some sort of cost involved in experiencing it. How, how can those things be true? Great question. Glad you asked. The answer is no. They, they can't both be true. You're right. Unless, unless what Psalm 32 is actually referring to is not a payment for sin at all that we're making in order to experience this forgiveness, but simply a humbling of ourselves and acknowledging our need to be forgiven. Look at verse 5 again. What is, what is David 
actually say? To then I acknowledged my sin to you, did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Do you see it there? Did he do anything to earn his forgiveness? Any steps he had to go through? Any cost? No. He acknowledged his sin, he confessed it, and in that moment, forgiven. Forgiven, which means the only true cost involved to know this blessed experience of God's forgiveness is to your pride, really. That's the only cost involved. It involves confessing failures and uncovering the things that you want so desperately to keep covered over. That's, that's the only cost involved. Many of us here, I have no doubt, know exactly what that experience feels like that David was describing in verses 3 and 4. When, when you've had something that you know you need to confess to someone else and you haven't, we've all, I think, felt that feeling of just like pressure in God's hand, the, the wasting away inside. I have no doubt some of you here sitting here this morning right now are experiencing that anguish David describes in verse 3 and 4. And the reason is, is because your pride is keeping you silent. It's keeping you unwilling to open up and to reveal that thing to God and confess and acknowledge, I, I know I can't carry through with this. But the complete wellness of being, the, the, the profound happiness and fulfillment that God promises, that freedom that he wants you to know is available in this moment. The freedom from that feeling, the freedom from that anguish is available to you this very moment. And the willingness to open up and confess to him the truth, from, to, confessing to the one from whom nothing is truly hidden anyways. You're not revealing anything to God that he doesn't already know. Which, of course, probably you won't ask the question, well, then what's the point of confessing? If he already knows what I've done, what's the point of confessing it? The answer is simply that confession is not something that you do for God's sake. It's what you do for your sake. When you acknowledge the reality, this is sin. This is, I can't continue in this. That's the very first step to being able to turn away from that thing and begin to follow in the path that God has for you. Confession is for your sake, not for God's. So this is, this is the blessing of confession. The profound difference between the covering of our sin that we attempt, which accomplishes nothing, and the covering of our sin by God, which accomplishes everything. Again, Tim Keller summarizes this so well, and he says this, the liberation of forgiveness starts with honesty. It's only when we uncover and admit our sin that God is willing to cover it. That is, he removes our objective guilt so that it can no longer bring us into punishment, and he also removes our subjective guilt so that we don't remain in that inner anguish. So that's the blessing of confession. Again, never a, a payment for our sin that merits God's forgiveness, but simply a humbling of our pride that acknowledges our deep need for it. Again, as John reminds us, as we heard already this morning, 1 John 1, 9, if, if we confess our sins, if we acknowledge our sins before God, God, I know this is wrong. I'm bringing this to you. He is faithful. He is just. He will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. The last thing I want to look at together with you now is the way of confession. The way of confession. And I want to look at this with you because what I love so much about Psalm 32 is that David doesn't just describe this experience of moving from the place of anguish to the place of blessing. 
leaving us with this feeling of, well, wow, thanks, David, that, that's great for you. He, he goes on here to actually show us how we can also make that same movement, how we can make the movement from anguish to blessing. And where you see that, first of all, is in verse 6. Look with me there. Now, it's subtle. Maybe you've noticed it already, but David seems to switch the narrative voice that he uses throughout this psalm, actually. Verses 1 and 2, he's speaking directly to the reader about God's offer of blessing. But then, in verses 3 and 5, all of a sudden, he's, he's, it's as though he's letting us in on a private reflection, just entirely between himself and God. But now, when we get to verse 6 and 7, suddenly he's still speaking to God, but it's as though he now suddenly acknowledges the reader in the room and kind of draws us in so that, that we can be instructed along with them about this way of confession at the same time. So you see in verse 6 and 7, David's conclusion is, Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you while you may be found. Surely, when the mighty waters rise, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. Okay, so the first key to moving from anguish to blessing is to make confession, uncovering our sin to God, the very first thing we do. The very first thing we do whenever we feel tempted to cover and hide. That's what David means there in verse 6 when he concludes that we should pray to God while he may be found. He means bring your confession to God at the earliest opportunity possible, not as the very last resort. Bring it to him first. The moment you start feeling like, I can't bring this, bring it to him. Make it the very first thing you do. And if you've been part of this church for any length of time, that shouldn't be a new concept to you. We, we talk about that all the time. Don't make going to God the last resort when you've tried everything else. Do it first. Make that the first place you go. He's proved again and again that it's the best place to start. And then when you look on in the second half of verse 6 into verse 7, David kind of explains why. He says, basically, look, because the reality is we're all going to get this wrong. We're all going to mess this up. We're all going to find ourselves in places of trouble where the waters are rising up around us again. The reason is because, as the hymn writer says so well, all of us, we are prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love. We're going to find ourselves in this place again. But what David is also showing you here is that when you go to God at the first trickle of water, when you go to him when fear and guilt are just beginning to pressure you to cover over your sin, what you find in God is not wrath, but rescue. Not shouts of judgment, but songs of deliverance, he says. Rather than hiding from God, God's desire is that you would hide yourself in him. That you would find refuge in him every time you're in danger of losing that blessed experience of his forgiveness. It's there the moment we turn and confess to him. Second key to moving from anguish to blessing has to do with considering the heart motivation behind our confession. And we see that in verses 8 through 10. Look at me there now. Now, the, the narrative voice switches again here. And although there's some debate as to who the intended speaker here is, I believe what David is giving us in this section is actually the direct words and instruction that God gave him when he came and confessed his sin to God, and that he's now drawing us into, he's, he's reciting back for us so that we can also learn from that instruction and learn to do this well ourselves. So first of all, in verse 8, David brings his confession to God, and God says to him, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you 
and watch over you, which in and of itself is just another example of the truth behind the contrasting idea in, verse, in Psalm 32 to the idea that God can't be trusted. Because do you see anything in verse 8 there that, that suggests even for a second that confession to God, bringing him your confession, results in wrath and judgment? No, he says, he, he's, he's talking to him like a loving father, like a coach who says, I want to come alongside you, I want to instruct you, I want to counsel you at every moment, I'm going to be with you, I'm going to be watching over you. It's not just like, oh, you did, or you, you finally figured out you got it wrong, okay, well, figure it out and get back to me. No, he's like, I'm going to walk along with you throughout this time. I'm going to lead you back on the path towards my blessing. Now look at verse 9 and 10. And this is where we see that, that key of heart motivation in our confession, how important that is, as God shows David, and by extension you and I, the way in which his instruction is to be rightly followed. Look at verse 9. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the man who trusts in him. Now, this is an interesting analogy because while you know, I've got a little bit of experience riding horses, my wife and my oldest daughter, they're way more into this, way more like into equestrian sports, you know, riding and training horses. They're, they're really into this stuff. And so what I've learned from them, as well as just some basic Google search study, is that for a horse to be to do anything with it, to ride it, to have it pull a carriage, plow something, do anything, it needs to be broken in first. Every horse starts out wild and then needs to be broken in. It needs to be trained with bit and bridle and whip. It needs to be broken and then it can do these tasks that we now all use horses for. And what this analogy from Psalm 32 is trying to highlight is the difference between someone who responds to God's training and instruction willingly with a humble spirit, which is actually the only effective confession that actually brings about this restored relationship, coming back to that blessed forgiveness that he offers, as opposed to someone who remains distrustful throughout and needs to be controlled by force to comply with that same instruction. This is where you have outward conformity to what God shows, but inside nothing's changed. Inside you're still like, no, no, I don't trust you, I don't believe you. He's showing us the difference here with this analogy. What God's saying to David then and to us today is basically, there's a way of coming to me with your confession that's actually still hiding. It's still hiding, not really confessing at all. It's a way of seeking the blessing of God's forgiveness without desiring relationship with the God who freely offers it. To give you an example, just consider a spouse who's confronted about some behavior that is damaging to the relationship. And maybe it's the husband, maybe it's the wife, and they're just like, if that doesn't change, I'm out of here. I'm not sticking around. Now, on the one hand, the spouse could, could realize their fault, the great value of their marriage and the relationship, and out of great love for their partner, confess their error, vow to, I'm going to live a new way now because I realize how damaging this is to our relationship. But on the other hand, a spouse could simply just fear to lose face, fear to lose uh, maybe societal status as maybe now I'm, a, now I'm a divorced person. And so just simply out of the fear of, of that consequence, they, go, they confess, they, they go to counseling, they do whatever, just simply so they don't have to experience the consequences for the sin. That, of course, is not a long-term solution. And this is what it means 
to obey God's counsel or instruction like a horse or a mule, not as a willing or a humble participant. Again, Keller notes, we usually live as we should only when we have to, out of self-interest, because there are consequences that keep us on the path. That is to heed God like a mule, controlled only by bit and bridle. Do you see the difference? And yet over and over again, what we see from God's word is that what he desires from us is not some kind of just dutiful compliance, but just a passionate, committed trust in him that, that, that results in following his loving instruction. Again, you see in verse 10, David says, many are the woes of the wicked, those who just try to fake or, or feign confession, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the man who trusts in him. Who, who submits themselves to what he's showing them, says, I know you know better. I'm going to bring this to you and trust that you're going to lead me back to the place of blessing. So I, I, can't, I can't answer for you, but as it relates to that, every single one of us here today needs to be able to answer the question, why am I submitting to God's commands? Why, why am I, if I'm bringing you this confession, why am I doing it? Am I doing it simply out of self-interest alone, just simply to avoid the consequences of my sin? Or do I truly desire a restored relationship with the one offering me this promise of blessing? And that my trust and obedience for him is nothing more than an overflow of the grateful heart that I have for him and the relationship that he's bought for me. We need to know the difference. We need to know why it is that we are following him. And that because that's how we, in the end, can truly benefit from this way. This way that David reveals to us here, coming to God first. The moment we feel tempted to hide, before the idea that he can't be trusted can take over again. And obeying his instruction from a willing heart that trusts in his steadfast love for us, rather than just out of self-interest and trying to avoid the consequences of our sin alone. You know, as you look through this, when you consider the evidence presented for us here, as well as in thousand other places in God's word, you almost feel foolish for having believed that idea that God couldn't be trusted. It's just evidence after evidence, like, no, you, you can trust him. And yet, so many times we're fooled again, and, and it's so you see it again here in verse 30, Psalm 32, and it's almost like, it's almost like you're watching that, that like courtroom drama where someone's being wrongly accused, and because you know all the information, you've seen the evidence that maybe the jury hasn't seen. You're like, how can they... You're yelling at the TV. How can they find him guilty? He's so obviously innocent. That's what we have here. We're seeing the evidence and we're like, why, why would I believe that you couldn't be trusted? How could I ever have believed that? There's no question. There's no question. The idea that God can't be trusted has undoubtedly been resilient. And hey, guess what? You're, you're going to be tempted to believe that lie again before the day's over. And so will I. It's, it's a resilient, contagious idea that has taken hold and continues to fool us. But that's why passages like Psalm 32 are so great, so powerful, because when we're tempted to believe that lie again, they present us with that powerfully contrasting idea that the truth that God's steadfast love is for us, that when we will bring him our confession, he will receive us and he will cover over our iniquity, rather than us trying to cover over our ourselves, it just leaves us suffering in the silence of our own covering, which leaves us in anguish. It shows us we can trust and we can bring these things to him. That's why these are so helpful to us. 
So in a sense, I mean, this is easy, right? Bringing our confession to God, this should be an easy thing. In light of all this evidence supporting the idea that he truly can be trusted. But where it starts to become a little bit more, okay, a lot more complicated, a lot more complex, a lot more difficult, is as it relates to confessing to one another. And I'll close with this this morning. Confessing to one another. As I said when we began, the, the idea that God can't be trusted, it doesn't just sit in a little vacuum by itself. It spreads out. It compounds itself into other consequences, overflowing into the belief that we can't trust one another either. If you look in uh, James, I'll read it for us here. James chapter 5. He says this, beginning at verse 14. Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Now look at verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Okay? (laughs) And yet, if we're being honest, the evidence... For the majority of us, myself included, supporting the idea that we can't trust one another, that I can't actually safely do that, it's powerful, right? All of us have evidence after evidence that says, no, that's not safe actually to do that. I've got many times in my life where I've confessed something to someone else and I've been totally condemned, totally felt their judgment, and it's been a deeply painful and shaming experience. And so... We're afraid to do this. The evidence for God, okay, I can see there's lots of evidence, but with each other, many of us have evidence that proves just the opposite is true. We can't actually do this with each other. And yet, if we're going to submit ourselves willingly to God's instruction, we've got to do something with James 5. What do we do? Well, this is not going to be everything. But what I'll say firstly is this. I think when it comes to confessing to one another, firstly, we need to to consider the reality that we need to be wise about how we confess our sins to other people as well as to whom we confess. That you don't need to confess to everybody. Everybody doesn't need to know everything about you, but it can happen within a trusted context of close relationship where you've established that trust with each other. Acknowledging the fact that not being God that there's going to be times when the response is not what it should be. It's not what we would hope it would be. People are going to respond badly at times, even in the best of contexts. Secondly, I think we need to be able to point the mirror back at ourselves and ask, am I a safe person to confess to? When people come to me with things, when they confess to me, do they find covering with me or do they find condemnation? Finally, I think we need to consider the evidence that I pray you've also experienced in life, namely that when you remove the filters, when you take off the the church clothes we so often come in here with, you remove the covering, and you uncover your failures, confess your sins to one another, how those actions can also produce empathy, can produce understanding, can produce even bring relief and encouragement to people as they, you confess where you're struggling, where you're failing, and they're just like, oh, you too? You struggle that way too? Wow, okay, so maybe I'm not the only one that struggles that way. We also have evidence that that's true. When we open ourselves up and say, hey, I don't got this figured out. 
I haven't figured this all out. I don't do this perfectly. How encouraging that is to others and how we can come alongside each other in that same coaching, supporting way. I think that's the tr- one of the true benefits and healing that comes from confessing to one another. And it's why it's my desire for us as a, a church family that we would just continue to grow and, and risk being increasingly like this. The kind of place where we would just be honest and real with one another about where we truly are, where we truly struggle, where we truly fail. Because it's only in knowing where you're starting from that you have any hope of getting to the place of blessing that we're all trying to reach. Amen.